0: Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit their website, avemariapress.com, for a wide selection of Catholic books, podcasts, videos, and free downloadable content. Receive 25% off your next order with code REDEEMER. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Praying for the Dead That is a spiritual work of mercy, but does it really do anything? Do our prayers matter to the dead? Do the dead matter to us? I wanted to find us some help in understanding this practice of the Christian faith, so I have invited— Professor John Cavadini, to talk with us about his own practice of praying for the dead and about the love of Christ poured out for us and about our communion with the dead in the Eucharist. Yes, of course, these are theological matters, but they are also matters of devotion, matters of grieving and longing and hope. I think that what we are about to talk about will matter to you, And I know that it will matter to me. If you've been listening to our show for some time, you know that I'm working on a project between my own McGrath Institute for Church Life and Ave Maria Press about our relationship with our beloved dead. This is part of a book I am writing on this topic. As part of the project, I've been talking with people about their memories of and their hopes for their beloved dead, in some ways about praying for the dead. I've asked a few of those people if they'd be willing to record an episode for our show so you can listen in too, and this episode, in a way, stands in that line. There were three episodes prior to this one, in that line, where I hosted first, Laura Kelly Finucci, then Stephanie Dupre, and finally Robert Cording. You may want to check out those episodes on our podcast if you like this one. By the way, John Cavadini My guest for today. He's professor of theology and McGrath Cavadini, director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame, which makes him my boss. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you. John, you and I have talked a few times about the spiritual work of praying for the dead, and you've told me. That you've been a lot more aware of praying for the dead recently. Why do you think that is? Why have you been more aware of praying for the dead?
1: Well, I think part of it is I'm older. (laughs) (laughs) Once you reach a certain age, you sort of start becoming aware that you're not going to be here forever, um, maybe more aware than you had been. But also, um, the older you get, the more people, well, you accumulate in your life who have died. And some of these are people you grew up with and are a little bit shocked to find that they're gone and you're still here. Some of it is that you you accompany people who are dying. I was present when my mom died 4 years ago. I wasn't present when my uncle who was 97 almost 98 died, but I was, you know, in communication with him. And so you have these experiences of accompanying people in death more and more, it seems to me, as you get older. So you accumulate a kind of archive or dossier of accompaniment on the one hand and on the other hand of people that you've known and who passed away younger than you were. Younger than you yeah. are. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pray for them. I want, to, I want something beautiful to happen to them. I, I care about them still. I didn't stop caring about them because they died. Some of them I, are people that I just have found out are, are dead. I hadn't kept up with them. People who died in abject circumstances, people who died in treatment centers alone. I want something to happen to them that's nice. I don't know how else to put it. I, I have hopes for them.
0: Yeah. What does it mean to pray for them? I mean, this, is, this sounds like a sort of abstract question, but when we're praying for the dead, for people we've known, people we've loved, who have died. And as you're saying, you're hoping something beautiful happens to them. You have hopes for them. What do you understand that you're really praying for? Is there a sort of an object to that hope? Is there a direction for that hope?
1: Well, in Catholic teaching, we're praying that they get to heaven. So we're praying that they enter into the fullness of life, the fullness of divine life, heaven, which is beyond even our imagination in terms of its happiness and blessedness. So we're praying that they are fulfilled as human beings and that they're happy. And some of it is, you know, it can't help but feel that would make up for some of the things that they suffered, some of the ways in which they, you could think, got a raw deal, some of the ways also in which they were faithful to you. I don't know, you hope that that, you pray that that bears fruit in eternal life. And it's praying for the dead is a work of mercy right? To pray for the living and the dead, spiritual work of mercy. I think that like, the more you pray for the dead, like so it's something you have to do in a way. Like The more you pray for the dead, the more you realize or can realize that it is a work of mercy. All the works of mercy are acts which in some way treat someone as an end in themselves as not something to be used towards another goal or end. In a way, praying for the dead is the most, well, it seems like an, on a natural level, the most useless thing. Like you can't get anything out of the dead. They're dead. <laughs> so <laughs> you're praying for who? <laughs> I mean, you're praying for the someone who cannot, in natural terms I'm talking now, yeah. cannot help you at all. They're just useless. And so praying for the dead, it, I don't know how to put this. It feels more and more like an act of mercy, like somehow you're admitting into your time Care someone who's utterly useless. It seems like thereby you're having mercy on them when it's just so easy to forget about them, especially people who weren't necessarily dear to you. Hmm. You just get a longer and longer list of people that you know that have died. And somehow I feel the burden or the need or whatever to responsibility. I don't know, to pray for them. You know, we say, Sometimes at Mass, we pray for those who have no one to pray for them. Well, I feel like there's a lot of people like that, and I know many of them, and so I feel like I they're on my list. It feels more and more to me like an extension of mercy. I feel like I'm having mercy on someone by praying for them. It also reminds you, right? I mean, you have to almost enter into the mindset of the dead. Is that really silly? Which is what? What is the mindset of the dead? Like, naturally speaking, what is it? It makes you realize how utterly vulnerable you are and how much life is a sheer gift over which you have no power. And to pray for someone having a destiny after death, the more you do it, the more you realize you're praying for something that's a sheer gift, especially when you include the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. This is like you have no power over it, just like you have no power over death. So in some way, praying for the dead is giving yourself to God too. It's giving yourself to God in a way that acknowledges your utter dependence, because you have to face that if you're going to pray for the dead. Mm. And praying for the dead means you face that.
0: You know, to speak of praying for the dead or to recognize praying for the dead is one of the spiritual works of mercy. To recognize an opportunity for mercy is also to recognize the suffering that's in front of you, and as you're saying, the helplessness of the dead and the extreme form of vulnerability, powerlessness. I wonder here if if you could think about the Christian duty of praying for the dead according to the preferential option for the poor. That this biblical doctrine that we ought to make a preferential option for those who are poor, not for any other reason, first of all, than because God has made a preferential option for the poor. Is there a way in which this duty of praying for the dead also falls within that broad sweep of the preferential option?
1: Absolutely, it does, because the dead are the poorest of all, in a way. Naturally speaking, they have nothing nothing at all. I mean, the evidence, like, is what? Someone is just wiped out. That's the evidence to human natural consciousness. And you pray for the dead, you're thinking of someone who's under the ground. You're thinking of someone who's turned into ashes. You're thinking of someone who doesn't seem to exist in any meaningful way anymore. So to pray for the dead means to face that and to face it down, you might say, and to keep going, and therefore to, in a sense, in that moment, restore dignity to the dead maintaining them in a community of memory and realizing you have no essential advantage over them Hmm. i remember i used to um in in my new england town like to go and etch gravestones you know like because the inscriptions were fading away and i lots of times they were addresses to the viewer reminding the viewer i am you are alive but i am dead in a short space of precious time your name will be read as well as mine i remember that one wow And so you don't really have anything over the dead. To have mercy on them, to pray for them, to hope for them, is in a sense to realize you're in the same boat Mm. eventually.
0: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. John Cavadini, professor of theology and McGrath Cavadini, director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. We're talking about the spiritual work of praying for the dead. You mentioned briefly a moment ago about the resurrection of the body, life everlasting, amen. And to think about the resurrection of the body, of our bodies, might draw for us questions about what would our resurrected bodies be. And I remember here, you've talked to me before about St. Augustine's treatment, questions about the resurrected body that come, especially in book 22 of The City of God, where he gets sometimes quite specific about questions about the resurrected body, God's remembering of us according to our bodies. Questions like whether women will retain their sex in resurrected bodies or for those who die in infancy, will they inherit mature bodies in the resurrection? These would have been maybe questions that people would have posed. What is Augustine doing when he's asking questions like that about our resurrected bodies in union with God? I guess this is a question of, like, how does this kind of shape our hope or what we're praying for or what we imagine for our dead?
1: It's interesting. um, Wittgenstein, who wasn't a Catholic, he had this phrase that always sticks with me. Love sees the resurrection. Hmm. So the resurrection isn't something that you can see without love, meaning our images of the resurrected body are more likely than not to be, I don't know, self-centered. Or to be wish fulfillment. Whereas Christ's body is resurrected what? His body is resurrected by the love which bent down and gave itself, the love which accepted the penalty of death, though he didn't owe the penalty. And so, refusing to break solidarity with us, even at the point of death, that refusal to break solidarity is life itself. Mm-hmm. And so that love is life, and we're always resisting that love. Therefore, we're always resisting the resurrection in some sense. We're always resisting the sight of the resurrected one, and we're always resisting, in our own imagination in a way, what the resurrected body would be like. We're trying to make it more like now, only somewhere else. (laughs) Where it's easier to what organize a baseball game like, or something <laughs> um, like we would be doing here. Only love sees the resurrection, so it's the eucharistic life. It's the life formed in devotion to and communion in the passion that begins to be able to see the resurrection. It seems to me, and so Augustine has this picture of of the resurrected body. Some of it is a little bit amusing, like he thinks that everyone will be raised in the body that they had when they were 33 or would have had if they had lived to 33. Because, of course, it's symbolic. 33 is the age at which Christ died. Uh But he's also thinking that's probably your prime. Um, So, you're going to be raising your prime. You're not going to be around. Um, But the symbolism is important because we're going to have attained the full stature of the human being Christ. So, there what he means is he points out that Christ had his wounds, the resurrected body, he's asked, told John, you know, you can feel them. So he still has his wounds, and he extrapolates from that. He imagines then that the martyrs will be raised with their wounds, because these wounds, they're glorified, but they're still there. They are the embodied memories of love, like what the works of love were done in this body. And the body is raised, you could say, as a testimony to the works of love that were done in this body and that were perfected in this body, so in a sense, he's saying you'll rise in your prime, you know, at thirty-three, but you'll also have the marks that love inscribed on your body, and in particular, the suffering that the suffering that you undertook in love inscribed on your body—they're there. So you could think you could extrapolate at any mark, yeah. Like, how about thinking about? Stretch marks, I don't know, of a, of a mother. Those marks are marks of love, of endurance and labor, et cetera. And so, why would they be erased? They won't be. Maybe people don't like to think they'll be erased with their stretch marks, but the, <laughs> but the point is the meaning of them will be transparent to the eye. You'll see mm. the love in the mark on the body. The same thing with people who say, well, how will I recognize my grandmother? I know her as a person with wrinkles and. Someone whose face is obviously aged, how will I recognize her? Will she be the same person? And I think Augustine's answer would be that somehow those marks of love, those marks of a a life lived long suffering in faith, et cetera, won't be erased because they're yours and they say something about you, but it doesn't mean that you'll be an old person. It doesn't mean that you'll be aged. It doesn't mean that you'll not be agile or something like that. But it means that someone will be able to see the suffering that love etched on your face. It won't go away. It'll be you. But transparent to the love that made it what it is, just like Christ's wounds are transparent to the love which he bore for us that it, that endured the sufferings of those wounds. Mm. So in a sense... What does it say that the resurrected body is a glorified body? It means it's one that's fully enlivened by and transparent to the love of Christ poured out on the cross to which we are, have communion in the Eucharist. That's the life, that love that's going to embody your resurrected body, enliven it. And the whole of Christian faith really is, do you believe it? Do you believe that this love is actually life? Do you believe that this love, which you... Have when you receive Holy Communion, which you're put into communion with, do you believe that that love is life? And that if you live your life according to that belief, it will have meaning and that meaning will bear fruit unto eternal life. How? Love sees the resurrection, not fantasy. Love sees the resurrection. So the best way to see the resurrection, basically, is to go to Holy Communion daily. I mean, to form yourself, to be, allow yourself to be formed in the Eucharistic love that was poured out on the cross, there it is right there, represented in every Mass, you're able to enter into it, and it's that love, it's why the Eucharist is so often connected to immortality, to incorruptibility, to resurrection, etc.
0: This is Leonard DiLorenzo, you're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking Dr. John Cavadini, we are talking about the spiritual work of praying for the dead. Speaking of the reception of the Eucharist and the Eucharist as our encounter with the resurrected by the glorified body given to us, we know that often a mass will be offered for the intention of or for the memory of someone who has died. The mass is offered for them. Or in the Eucharistic prayer, we recall, we remember in that prayer those who have died, sometimes by name, sometimes not. How is the Eucharist a sacrament of the communion, in that case, of the living and the dead? How are we united to the dead in the Eucharist?
1: Okay, because if you think that the Word, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, he himself bent down far enough to be not only truly human, to have flesh, to live a human life, but he didn't have contempt for our fallen state, for our state under the curse of death. And as Paul says, so John says he became flesh, but as Paul says he became a curse. He became sin. He was made into sin for us. In other words, he accepted, became incarnate under the conditions, not of the original creation, but of the fall. He had no contempt. He went right into that Jordan River, being numbered among sinners. Being numbered among sinners means being willing to have the fate of a sinner, though you're not one. And he persisted. You know, he didn't come down from the cross. He persisted in that solidarity. He made a fellowship, like he drew us into a fellowship. He didn't get drawn into the fellowship of sinners. By joining us, that act of love gave us a fellowship we couldn't give ourselves, namely in him. That fellowship in him is life. And the fact that he persists in it to the point of death means that it's that love which is victorious over death. That love is what is the life that raises his body in the resurrection. So, okay, what's Holy Communion? Holy Communion is the sacrifice of the Mass, it is the re- sacramental representation, not the repetition, the representation of the Passion of Christ on the Cross. And so that means that. In Holy Communion, we are welcomed into, into communion, into that love which conquered death. So, the communion of saints is a communion in the love that conquered death. It's a communion, therefore, that the boundary of death does not interrupt, does not destroy. The communion persists because it's a communion in him. It's a communion in his love. You could say it's a communion in his death, because his death is, you could say, paradoxically, well, it is the highest point of his love, his self-emptying love, because he doesn't back out of the solidarity with sinners. He takes the hit, which isn't his. But paradoxically, that love, therefore, is at its greatest. Therefore, it's at the moment of Christ's death that his life is at the greatest. Mm-hmm. And it, that can't be killed. And it is what raises his body. And so, in a sense, communion of saints is communion in the death of Christ. Is not our blessing cup a participation in the blood of Christ, right? The Hmm. blood of Christ, meaning not some special chemical, but his, well, I mean, his self-gift, which was unto the shedding of blood. So, is not our blessing cup a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ? Yes. And in that death, he overcame death. That's why the communion of saints, insofar as we participate in it, is Eucharistic. Mm. But of course, the economy of the sacraments eventually is when all things come to fulfillment, even the Eucharist. And I hate to think this, because someone who's devoted to the Eucharist, you just hate to think it's going to pass away. But it doesn't pass away without being fulfilled. So, It's now the wedding supper of the Lamb in mystery and in sacrament, but then it will be the wedding supper of the Lamb in its fulfillment. Love sees the
0: resurrection. It's so beautifully put, and it just opens, for me and I imagine for people listening, our imaginations about the gift of Christ in the Eucharist. And as you were speaking about this, that the furthest point of his gift in solidarity with us in his death, and perhaps even if we look past Good Friday to Holy Saturday, he took on the helplessness of being dead with the dead, became vulnerable in the same way in which we become vulnerable in our death, but did it as his final act of love. And I I don't know, for me, thinking about my beloved dead, but as you were saying, even those who were not dear to us who are dead, that that love to take on our helplessness, that the Son of God took on our helplessness is on the one hand a consolation, but it also is like a thorn of challenge that this ought to generate within me hope for those that it's not easy for me to want to hope for, perhaps.
1: Gosh, Lenny, that's really beautiful. And it also makes me think praying for the dead is a way of, in a way, being with Christ on the cross, Mm. right? You're praying for the dead in faith, That he took this condition on himself, as you said, even on Holy Saturday, you know, the helplessness of death. So that praying for the dead is like, well, in faith, is accompanying Christ on the cross. It's identifying with his identification Mm -hmm. with the helplessness and the powerlessness of the dead. Mm. He didn't even have contempt for that. That's the beautiful thing. He had no contempt. He came— I mean, I think, you know, would I have jumped in the Jordan River? i well, not jumped in, but I would have thought, oh my God, see who went in that river? Like, it's like tax collectors and pro- like, what? I found everyone will think that's what I am. But he didn't care. He went right in the water. <laughs> and then at the point of death, it's kind of like, first of all, I would have definitely come down from the cross like, yeah, I'm coming. To- <laughs> I'll show you. But it's not just, it's that he didn't have contempt for the dead for the state of being dead he took that on too mm. that's why as our own death approaches you might say there isn't a place in our life that he's not there already mm. he's there too cuz he didn't have contempt and so when you pray for the dead it's embracing that you might say that Jesus is self his, his self emptying taking on the lot even of the dead when you pray for the dead you do take on their lot to some extent you are You're mindful of – you're there. You're mindful of them. You're – what happened to that person? You're kind of taking on that state and solidarity with them in some way, but you're not doing it without faith. You're doing it in faith. Mm. And so you're, in a sense, then – it's like love of enemy. When you pray for your enemy, put it that way, you do feel like Christ on the cross, (laughs) right? Because Christ died for us when we were still his enemies. So the more you pray for your enemies, the more you're up there on the cross. Praying for the dead is kind of like that. The more you pray for the dead, the more, in a sense, you're on the cross with the Lord, accepting a condition that isn't his, mm. and having no contempt for those who deservedly are dead, but going right there without contempt and touching even that. And once he touch anything he touches is never the same, including death.
0: This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest, Dr. John Cavadini, Professor of Theology, McGrath Cavadini Director, the McGrath Institute for Church Life here at Notre Dame. We're talking about the spiritual work of praying for the dead. Is there anyone, John, who's shown you the importance of praying for the dead? Others whom you've learned this discipline from in different ways, who have inspired you to keep this discipline?
1: You know what? I'm a fan of Dorothy Day's. And sometimes she talks about her, her list that she had in her prayer book. She actually had lists of people that she prayed for. And I thought, wow, you know, someone like uh. Dorothy Day
0: has lists <laughs> in her pocket with her prayer book, right in yeah. her prayer book.
1: So that every time she opens the prayer book, when she prays, you know, she goes through her list and she talks about how it takes a long time to go through that list.
0: And it does. Especially as she gets older. Yeah, She knows more people who have died. That's what I'm sort
1: of (laughs) – the older you get, the more people you have on a list, I guess. The more people to remember, they're present to you in that memory. And you're offering – in a way, you're offering that memory to God. You're offering everything that you know about the person, your love for that person. You're offering it all up to God because love sees the resurrection. And the only way that – well, you can't do anything. They can't do anything for you, but – you can't do anything for them. You have to ask God. You know, so you you're in that position of giving up the desire to control, to be in control. You're saying, "I trust you Jesus. You bent down. You emptied yourself. You gave yourself. I trust that what you give is better than what I can imagine." Love sees the resurrection. I
0: don't know if this is too personal to ask, but might as well ask it. You mentioned your mother, your uncle, who would be on your list. But can you share with us maybe an unlikely person who has made their way onto your list, the list of the dead for whom you keep in prayer?
1: Well, I'll tell you one person. There was one kid whom I knew in high school. He was not popular. Nobody liked him. I didn't particularly like him. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's true. He was on the same school bus route I was on, but he was at the end. I always saved him a seat. I sat in the front, and I saved that front seat for him because I knew that if he had to if he had to go in the back of the bus, the r- ride to school would be a, just one merciless, like, making fun of him the whole time. So I saved him a seat in the front of the bus. He wrote me in, in the yearbook a little note saying, thanks for sitting with me on the bus. I didn't have a friendship with him. And then about 5 years ago I discovered that, that he died in a treatment center alone with nobody. He's on my list. For example. Hmm. I pray for him all the time and I even told well one of my kids about him and he had a mass said for him. It's very unlikely these kinds of things there are other people like that. That was the most poignant, that that guy who was alone in life, as far as I could tell, was alone in death and in probably not great circumstances. Wouldn't you want him to be surprised? <laughs> yes. that Someone actually does love him more than sitting with him on the bus, sort of grudgingly. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and your one of your kids offered a mass for him. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've given us Perfectly good reason to pause and consider for ourselves the list that we do or ought to keep in praying for the dead and giving us an account of how this indeed is a work of mercy to take perhaps ever more seriously. It seems perhaps like the one work of mercy that's the most useless. Right? Like mm-hmm. all the, especially the corporal works of mercy, you can see what you do. And mm-hmm. even a lot of the spiritual works of mercy, you can feel in some ways the impact. This is the one, there's nothing given back. That's
1: right. That's such a good point. To the natural reason, there's nothing given back.
0: Mm. Well, maybe we're on there. Praying for the dead, there's nothing given back. It's a participation in Christ's love for us. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, John, thanks for sharing this time with us and opening this up for us. Sure. Thank you, Lenny. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame, FCU.